Welcome to the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services in Conversations with podcast series on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Uh, welcome to UBS On Air. My name is Judy Spalthoff, and I have the pleasure of leading our family advisory and philanthropy services team here at UBS in the Americas. The mission of our group is to serve as a thought partner to exceptional client families. We understand that our clients' needs extend beyond the purely financial, so we take a strategic and sustainable, sustainable approach to managing their wealth for continuity. And while wealth can certainly make it easier to support a family, open communication is what makes a family flourish. That's why today I've invited Jennifer Risher to share her story and join me in an open conversation about wealth. Jennifer is the author of a book called We Need to Talk, a Memoir About Wealth, which tells her story and explores the impact of wealth on identity, relationships, and a sense of place in the world. She was born in Seattle, Washington, grew up in Oregon, and graduated from Connecticut College. In 1991, Jennifer joined Microsoft, where she was worked as a recruiter and then as a product manager. She and her husband, David, have two daughters and live in San Francisco, where David is the CEO of World Reader, a nonprofit he co-founded with a mission to create a world where everyone is a reader. In response to COVID, Jennifer and David launched the hashtag HalfMyDAF Challenge, which inspired over $8.6 million in giving to nonprofits in 2020. And in 2021, it will be running through September 30th, with over $3 million to be given away. So Jennifer, thank you for joining me today. Let's jump in. Great. Thank you, Judy. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Um, So I referenced your book, uh, We Need to Talk, a Memoir About Wealth. So I think first things first, tell us why did you write the book? Good question. Yes. Um, You know, when I joined Microsoft, I was 25 and I just got so lucky. I met my husband, David, and I got these things called stock options that ended up being worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then um, six years later, when David and I were married and expecting our first child, uh, he took a job at a small, unknown startup that was selling books on the internet called Amazon.com. And we were in our early... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we were... It was incredible because we were in our early 30s and the company went public and suddenly we had more money than we could wrap our heads around. Um, And I want to say up front that money clearly makes life easier. I'm very fortunate. But wealth surprised me. You know, having a lot of money doesn't look or feel like what Hollywood sells us. Wealth can be isolating. I felt the impact as a parent, as a sister, as a friend. And as a daughter, it was painful to feel as though my parents disapproved of what I had. So eight out of 10 people with wealth grew up middle class or poor, and yet we're not talking to each other about the emotional challenges. Now, it might be hard to think of wealth as a challenge that needs to be overcome, especially now. There's, there's so many people in need. I mean, COVID has spotlighted extreme racial and economic inequality. I should pay more taxes. Minimum wage needs to be higher. We need a stronger social safety net. And I mean, there are a lot of policy changes that are needed, but I think we need change at a personal level, too. I want to help us move money out of the taboo category and out of the shame category and start to have conversations. 
Because normally, you know, if I have a problem or a question, I turn to my friends. If I want to figure out, should our 16-year-old have a curfew, I talk to everyone I know. I get their ideas. I hear their advice. I hear about their experiences. And just talking is helpful because it lets me know that my question or problem is normal and that it's valid and that it's shared. But the same doesn't happen with money, especially with having a lot of it. So I couldn't turn to friends. And so I thought, well, I'll turn to books. But there, there are no books. So I really wrote my book to help um, the millions of Americans like me who have more money than they had growing up. Or they have more money than many in their extended family or more money than many of their friends. I'm telling my story to help other people understand their own. And my goal is not to be prescriptive. I'm not trying to tell people how to do rich right. I don't have the answer for that. I'm offering up a story that hasn't been told, that talks about things like how tricky it can be to travel with another family that doesn't share your resources, or how upsetting it is to feel a friend's jealousy and not be able to share what's really going on in your life. I want to validate these experiences and demystify wealth. I also wrote the book to help us start talking. You know, money is a taboo subject, but it really doesn't have to be. And the more I've talked about money, the more I realize it's not money itself that we don't talk about. It's the emotions behind the money that we avoid. And, you know, these emotions are universal. It doesn't matter how much is in your bank account. If you have parents, if you have siblings, if you have friends, a partner, you probably know that money can be really uncomfortable to discuss. We're afraid. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of hurting other people's feelings. We're afraid we won't measure up or we'll sound unknowledgeable. I mean, we all have some degree of money shame. And we all have a money story. And our money stories start in childhood. And that's really where we kind of learn our attitudes and, and habits around money. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you said a lot, so we're going to unpack that. But, you know, one of the things that jumps out at me is, is some of the work that we do. One of the things that we talk about with families is we're certainly worth more than what's in our bank accounts, right? And so how do we capture that true wealth and how do we talk about it and how do we you know um count it right if you will how do you count your human capital how do you um your your social capital and all of that stuff and then i would add to your list of of things that that you now need to worry about is just how do you raise children in and basically a world where you didn't grow up in um and so it's it's, it's a challenge you, you mentioned that there's a few things about wealth that surprised you one of them being the isolation and perhaps how it's not how Hollywood has, has portrayed it. Um, can you, can you expand on that a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked what you just said about, you know, you're worth more than what's in your bank account, because I think that it was part of the surprise. It's like, well, it really isn't about the money. Um, yes. Every dollar is going to make you happier if, if you're kind of struggling to get by. But once you hit that plateau of, I guess the research tells us that $75,000, you know, twice as much, 10 times as much is not going to make you twice as happy. 
Um, and, and that was a little bit of a surprise because I think there's such a lore around money. There's such a fairy tale we have in our heads around money. And, you know, I, I'm sure that maybe you've done this. You know, when I was in high school, I remember talking to my best friend and, and imagining what would we do if we had a million dollars? And, you know, of course, I'd have a fancy car and a cute boyfriend. But really, I thought at that time, like, OK, <laughs> um, all that money will change everything that if I had that money, my life would be perfect. And I think we often set ourselves up this way, thinking if only then my life would be perfect. And we do it a lot around money. If only I could get that big promotion. And we do it around other things too. If, if only I could lose 20 pounds or only I could meet the right person. I remember a friend of mine telling me, you know, she used to lie in bed at night, unable to sleep, thinking if only I could make $100,000. And then she started laughing because she was making a lot more than that, but she was still lying in bed at night, unable to sleep. You know, I had that if only happen, and I'm still me. I still have insecurities. My feelings get hurt. I make mistakes, and I'm not in a fantasy land. I think our view of wealth is so narrow and incomplete. You know, we see the Kardashians and the real housewives and the men of Wolf of Wall Street. And we know the people like Jeffrey Epstein or the parents who illegally tried to get their unqualified kids into top schools. We see that highly visible wealth. We see the stereotypes. But remember, eight out of 10 people with wealth grew up middle class or poor. They are you? <laughs> and we're hidden in plain sight, so much more ordinary than the stereotypes. And yet we're not talking about the distance that money can create in our relationships with family and with friends, or that money doesn't come with a handbook that tells us how to hire a good financial planner <laughs> or how to create a philanthropic strategy or how to raise unspoiled kids. We should be sharing these experiences. Yeah. I had someone once say to me, you know, it's, it's a lot, I found it a lot easier to make my money than it is to figure out what to do with it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's sort of, it's profound and it stays with me and I repeat it a lot. So let, let, let's dig into really the point here. So people don't talk about money. Like you said, it's taboo. I would say it's, I hope it won't be the last taboo, right? Um, which has been said over and over. So what do you think people with money, you know, what could the what could these potential conversations achieve, right? If we did start talking about it, what what's the outcome you're looking for? And I, I'm just really super curious about your thoughts here. Yeah, no, I think it's you know when we don't talk about something, it tends to loom large and take on a life of its own. Um, and I think conversations, and I can tell this from firsthand experience, like there's such a sense of relief when you kind of whatever that money situation is that's hanging over your head that you're avoiding, once you can get through a conversation, there's such a sense of connection and there's a chance for us to learn from each other the way we do about, you know, with other things we talk about. You know, it's how we can collaborate and come together. And I think money in the end is really one of the most intimate conversations we can have because it really is so much about the emotions um, and, and we're not talking to people who are closest to us, you know, our families and our extended families. So, you know, as individuals, I think it's, it's a powerful conversation to have. It, it is an uncomfortable one because we don't have experience. 
Um, but I, I also think, you know, it, it may sound far reaching, but I believe that conversations really could help us help our society and help us fight income inequality. I mean, there's so much suffering in our country right now, people going without housing and without health care, without food. There's an education crisis. And our silence has a lot of power. You know, by staying quiet, it just keeps the status quo in place. And it keeps us from examining our relationship with money. It allows us to stay in our bubble, sort of unaware of our own privilege even. I think we can do better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I literally couldn't agree with you more. Given the work we do in philanthropy, it's, you know, there's so much potential and so much more we can be doing. So give me an example of a money conversation you've had with someone close to you. And how did that go? Yeah. Let me give you two examples. Let me first start with um, a friend of mine who's who's middle class um, told me how she and her husband had driven the same car for many, many years. And she was like, oh, and that thing finally broke down. She bought an Audi Q5 and she'd always wanted that car. So she was really happy with the car. She was just thrilled to have this new car. Um, but then when she was thinking about visiting her sister and driving up in the car, she began to worry about being judged. In her mind, she could hear her sister saying, who aren't we fancy? And then in her mind, she started to justify the car, thinking, well, it was used. It wasn't that expensive. So even before she saw her sister, she was making assumptions and telling herself stories. And I think we do this all the time. We, we think we know what the other person's thinking and we, we, so we, and we don't really address it. What if she'd actually talked to her sister? And this is where I think that intimacy can come up. You know, it, it might be awkward to have that conversation, but on the other side, um, there really is a sense of connection. And, and now I'll share a story of, you know, my own story um, with my brother. So I have a brother who's two years younger And when he graduated from college, he went into the Peace Corps, and then he got a master's in Spanish and became a high school Spanish teacher. And this was many years ago. He wanted to buy a house, and David and I offered him $20,000 towards his down payment. But he refused our gift. He said he wanted to live within his own means. And this hurt my feelings. I, I felt as though he were looking down at us and looking down at our money and my feelings were hurt, but I didn't say anything. I just stayed quiet. And then a few years later when he was getting married, um, David and I get again, gave a, offered him a check as a wedding gift. And this time he accepted. And when his first child was born, we again sent a check and he and his wife thanked us for that. And we began to send money every year. And over the course of, of many years, um, we'd, he'd just stopped acknowledging our gifts. So I'd, I'd write a check in December and hear silence. It was like the money was sort of disappearing into a void. And I began to feel resentful. And I felt like he was taking me for granted. But I didn't say anything. Instead, I told myself stories. I thought, well, he's embarrassed. Or... Oh, he thinks we have so much money that it just doesn't mean anything to us. And then, and I hate, I'm not proud to admit this, but I just, I didn't send a check just a couple of years ago. And um, then in January, when we were communicating over email, 
um, at the end of one of his notes, he, he wrote, you know, wondering if a certain year end check is just late in the mail, is it? And I read that and I, I was shocked. I was angry. And of course I knew we had to talk. Here I was writing a book about talking about money, but it's, you know, it is uncomfortable. And I really had to sit down and think about what I wanted to say, how I was feeling. And I can say this, you know, as, as hopefully it'll be helpful to other people. I think it's really important, you know, when you try and have these kind of conversations to acknowledge that it's awkward, that we're going to fumble around and we need to give each other permission to get it wrong. These are uncomfortable conversations because we don't have we don't have the structure in place. We're not, we don't have the practice. So it's going to take time to build that muscle. But I, I can tell you with the conversation with my brother, you know, we got on the phone and I, I said, you know, my feelings are hurt that you haven't thanked us for our gift. And he apologized right away. He said, you know, he hadn't realized and that he said he thought it was more comfortable for me if he didn't make a big deal of the money, which completely made sense given how we had grown up because money wasn't something you were supposed to talk about and having a lot of it wasn't a good thing. So it, it completely made sense. And then once, once we were talking and he had said that, I mean, I hadn't realized that either. So, you know, the stories I've been telling myself weren't real. And then once we were connected and, and talking as two people who love and trust each other, we could put money in its place, not as something bigger than the two of us, but as a tool. And then we really could talk about it easily. I mean, he said, I don't need this money, but I really appreciate it. And I said, well, I'd never asked, you know, what are you doing with it? I, I, I want to know. I want to know. I want to be part of your life. Mm -hmm. So it really was, you know, you know, it, it, it does take, it, it, you have, we have to kind of get through that discomfort and, and admit that it's there um, but from my experience, there's just such a chance to, to truly connect in a, in a new way with someone. And like you said, I mean, once we're there, then we can talk about it. And there's so much to, we can learn from each other about money and, and what we're doing with it and, you know, our goals and um, there's collaboration to be had and, and, and so much learning. Yeah, I can, you know, I, I was drawing on, um, well, I was listening to a similar experience where it, it wasn't about necessarily money, but I'm an aunt to, to 12 nieces and nephews. And I had this, this moment at one point where I was just, I kind of blew up because I was upset that I, my gifts weren't being just birthday gifts weren't being acknowledged. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, at least text me, you know, mm -hmm. send me a thank you card. And, and, and my brother and I had a really healing conversation um, about that once too. So I can sort of draw on that. And now it's, you know, something that we almost make fun of and she's like, oh, don't forget to thank Judy, Aunt Judy or whatever. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it, but it is important to me, right? Because I do it out of love. Um, I'm not doing it just so I can be acknowledged. I just, but I, it, it's, it's sort of more of the principle of being grateful. And um, so I can, I can appreciate where we're coming from there. And, and, and one of the things we talk about on the team is not just, look, we communicate all day, right? We communicate through body language. We communicate through, you know, the, the Q5 we bought or whatever, but what is about the, what's the difference between that and the intentional communication we want to, to be present in our lives? What, how are we, you know, not just letting people make assumptions, but we are thoughtfully saying directly and having those conversations. It's sort of one of the, the bits of work we do around facilitating family meetings because 
we need to say what's not being said, or we need to, you know, align with our intentions versus what people are assuming. So there's a lot, there's a lot to be said there. So um, just shifting gears a little bit um, beyond just the conversation, um, you know, what do you believe people with wealth or since acknowledge that you, you have some too, um, what do you, what do you think people worry about most or what do you worry about most? Well, I think, yeah, I think we all worry most about our children. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the question I get the most often. And it's what I worried about for many, many years. But, you know, I really want to say that I think this image that we have in our society of the spoiled rich kid, it looms so large and it's so ugly and it's so where there's so much fear around that. But I don't think it's real. I think it's part of the stereotypes and, and, the, and the things that we see about wealth. The spoiled rich kid is, is every parent's worst nightmare. But, but, you know, kids are spoiled at every level of society, and it, it's not necessarily because of wealth. I think that's a, a, a myth of society. Um, no one wants to raise a spoiled child. And I think in the end, you know, I spend a lot of time worrying about it. In the end, it comes down to um, living your values. And um, it's not just, you know, telling your kids your values, but it's living them day to day, week to week, year to year, because your kids are watching you. And I mean, and that's in every small detail. Like if you're going to go to the grocery store with your kids, they're going to watch you as you, you know, drive up. If What if someone steals your parking spot? How do you react? Are you yelling? Are you gracious? They're listening and they're witnessing. And so they're watching the way you move through the world and they're likely going to follow, follow suit. So as you enter the grocery store, you know, and you start to make um, decisions about products that you're going to buy. I mean, actually, it's a great teachable moment. You can talk to them about the value of one product over the other and how to, how to figure out the price and, the, and showing what you value in, in, as you shop. Um, when you get to the meat counter and you interact with the man there, I mean, are you um, respectful? How do you interact with people when you check out? I mean, your kids are watching all these these actions. And, you know, when you sit around the dinner table, what are you proud of about your day? And, what, you know, what do you hope to achieve? Um, I think there's a lot to be said about being aware of your own good fortune. Um, and it's a lot about attitude and gratitude. Um, so I, I think I'd like to to give parents a little bit of comfort in knowing that if, if you're not a spoiled rich adult, you're probably not going to raise spoiled rich kids. And this whole image is just, I think, something that we need to kind of move out of our heads and realize that um, it's, it's not a foregone conclusion. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the fear of uh, entitled children or people growing up without, um, being productive members of society, right? I think is a lot of the work that we do on the team. And, you know, it's nice to hear you say this. I think a lot of, a lot of the people that we work with will enjoy hearing you say that because it, it is, it is the thing that keeps when their head hits the pillow, right? The thing that we really worry about the most. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, and the, the comment you made about values, you know, I, I second all of that, right? I, we see that, but it is a really interesting moment, not just the to, to, to live it too, but really just draw attention to it, right? Just even if, even if you've been living them to just say, hey, just as a reminder, you know, or mm-hmm. as a moment of, of self-reflection, let's talk about our values 
um, we have a, we'll call it an activity or a tool called the Purposeful Dialogue, where we help people just, and we facilitate that conversation, just help people bring it to the forefront. And and sometimes it's really not, you know, this, you know, jaw-dropping moment or anything like magically like, what, that's something important to you? Like, most of the time it's, it's confirming or affirming. Um, but it's a really interesting, you know, thing to do to just to have, again, like up conversations about money, having conversations about values. And then, like you said, you, you know, it's, it's everyone's watching. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to um, commend you on those values cards, because um, one of your advisors gave me a, a set of them and they were so powerful. I loved them. And, I, you know, I got our family, you know, my husband and my older daughter were, were into it. And my, I had to kind of drag my younger daughter along. <laughs> but she also loved, so we, we did the, the words and then we did the, the um, pictures. And it was so, I mean, everyone wants to feel seen and understood. Yep. And I think it really gave us an opportunity. I mean, it's nothing to do with money or wealth, but just about who are you and what do you value and what do we value together as a family? It just opened up such a beautiful conversation for us to have as a family. And it gave me insights into my, our daughters. And I think they saw stuff about us. So it's really, I, I think it's a great tool that I, yeah, I'm, I was very yeah, happy to have thank that. Thank you. I'm really happy to hear that. That was not planned or planted. Um, so we, yeah, I mean, it, it gets, it gets back to being intentional, right. About your communication mm -hmm. and be living it. You could be using these teachable moments, like whether how you treat people or, or the, the, the trip to the grocery store and so on. But yeah, I think that that's, it gets back to that to just really, you know, say it, say the words, be, be intentional about it. So um, mm -hmm. we just have a little bit of time left, but I'm really curious just generally, and you and your husband, David, um, you're really inspiring um, the challenge that you launched, the Half My DAF. Um, and for those listeners who don't know what a DAF is, it's a donor advised fund. So just a charitable vehicle to, to give money away. I, I would just love your overall thoughts on philanthropy and, and, you know, now that you have an, an opportunity to make a pretty big impact in the world with, with your wealth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I want to back way up because I, you know, I said earlier that we all have a money story. And I think, you know, part of that money story is, is kind of what we learn about giving. And, you know, in our family of origin, we learn about giving or we don't learn about giving. So I think it's important for people to realize that, that there's a philanthropic journey that we're all on and um, no matter where we are on that journey that we can always live you know grow and, and improve and, and increase our giving and I think it's it's a nice thing for advisors to think about because I think many people don't know what they're doing and they don't know how to approach philanthropy and it becomes overwhelming and I remember when I was in that place um, and it was a moment when our financial planner said, you know, you should open a staff, a donor advised fund. And so we, it, it's the moment where I realized, you know, letting go of the money isn't the hardest part. It's kind of figuring out where I want to give. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know where I did, wanted to give. And I felt so much pressure to have a philanthropic strategy and to do all the research and to do it right. And my fear of getting it wrong kind of kept me stuck. And so I think, you know, this is a nice place where advisors could talk to, to people because people want to do the right thing and they want to, to make a difference. They want to have an impact. And I think it comes down to really aligning. Again, we're, we're talking about values. I believe it's, it's, you know, our values and our passions and our interests. And there's no right and wrong here. I mean, if you 
care about, you know, saving the gorillas or if you care about women's reproductive health or serving an, an um, underserved kids um, in educational programs, it doesn't matter. But I think it's important for people to find what their passions are because that leads to longer term engagement and more impact. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and That's I think another area where, you know, opening the conversation, right? Having saying like, hey, I don't, I'm, I'm not an expert in this and talking to your, you know, your peers, your wealth peers, or, you know, philanthropic advisors can be really helpful because it's, it's, it's not a foregone conclusion just because you have money, you know how to give it away. Absolutely not. Yeah. And I think it really is an opportunity to open that conversation up with clients and, and offer guidance, um, mm-hmm. you know, offer, help them walk, walk through it with them and they'll appreciate that. That'll open up more conversations, I think, and, and build a closer relationship. Yeah, I agree. And, and the opportunity to, you know, not reinvent the wheel and take ego out of it. And there's like any other industry or any anything really just taking the myths out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the most common one being that if, you know, overhead is over X percent, then it must be bad. It's like, no, no. <laughs> like that's, no. Yeah. You know, so we, we have a lot of con- conversations, but really what we try to do is you know, at UBS, it's just meet people wherever they are on their, on their giving journey. Right. So you can mm-hmm. be, um, you know, a very experienced philanthropist and, and maybe perhaps those conversations are about, you know, development impact bonds and, you know, more sophisticated tools. But if you're just getting started helping find the focus, of course, we can give advice or talk about the charitable vehicle that works, but that's that's not where the, <laughs> the advice ends. That's kind of like the technical stuff. We just need to get out of the way. So, um mm-hmm. Well, Jennifer, I, I, I feel like we could talk for like another two hours about this, but um, for this, for the sake of time, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. Um, and of course, people can, can, you know, learn more and get your thoughts more by, you know, by reading your book, We Need to Talk a Memoir About Wealth. Um, so we appreciate this. Um, and I really appreciate you, you know, breaking down the stigma around talking about money. Um, and I know our listeners, listeners greatly appreciate hearing your story and how they, they may be able to relate to it. So thank you again, um, and hopefully that we can talk soon. Great. Thank you. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.